What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Actual Eye Podcast. It's Meaning Making 101. I'm Chris. I'm DJ. And tonight we're going to be covering episode 26 of John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis Lecture Series. And this episode is on cognitive science. This is a really good episode. It sounds like it's going to be boring academic stuff, but just trust, this is a really good one. He actually uh, calls out uh, our modern scientific materialism, uh, our modern scientific perspective as um, perhaps part of the problem, and as well as how science uh, utilized in its optimal form can also aid us, particularly philosophy, in line with cognitive science. And in our previous episode, we covered The Clash. Let me get us live, live, live up on Facebook. Oh, the Facebook peeps are not to be let out or left out. Not at all. We are also live on Twitch and on Facebook, if you guys like to watch there. We, of course, invite you to come on over to YouTube. This is the main place that we are doing Actually Live and Meaning Making 101. You can also actually hear this podcast on all major podcast networks, Spotify, Apple, all of the above. If you look up Actual Eye Podcast, you will find us. So we appreciate all of you listening and viewing and taking part in this learning journey with us. And now that I can read my handwriting, I know what last week's episode started out as. Oh yes, boy. Yes. What's up, Facebook? Hey, Facey the Book. And what's up, YouTube? What's up, Twitch? Yeah, go ahead. And if you want to go ahead, uh, start um, last week, I'm going to get us shared up here. Well, I guess we've moved. We've gone so secular say from um you know martin luther's uh period of time that starting period of time now we're getting to the point where you know the political arena is the place where ideas will be ideas and ideals will be um manifest if you will um and the idea of nation states nationalism um and the idea of the nation replacing God, if you will. Um, there's this emerging power of will um, using science. There's this imperialism, identities. Oh, man. My handwriting is garbage the other night. Uh, yeah, so you using, using um, imperialist identities to fill the gap. Um, in the, you know, that was the religious framework. Um, let's see, uh, in Germany at the time, there's, uh, you know, it was basically, you know, different German tribes and they were constantly behind the rest of their European counterparts. So there was an urge to move faster and pick things Germany up. Germany is a very young country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Germany is younger than Canada. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and then there was, you know, World War One, blood and destruction, like generational destruction. Um, and, you know, Germany got all, all ends of the blunted stick, if you will. And, you know, uh, we're terribly pressured by the victors of World War One. So Germany at this period of time is really, you know, as, you know, a people's, as a new country, as this burgeoning national identity, they're really feeling kind of, you know, uh, beat up, bruised, and uh, uh, would say resentful, perhaps. 
Um, yeah, you could say that. And, you know, well, when you're resentful, you got to blame somebody. So hmm. you start getting, well, who to blame? Who have the most? Well, you know, the, the capitalist Jew hmm. that has the most money that seems to, you know, run the banks and run the good shops and, you know. And, you know, this is, harkens back to Martin Luther's, you know, original sentiment towards the Jews. He was no fan um, as well. So this just didn't come out of nowhere. It was just like, oh, there's somebody, the Jews, you know, mm-hmm. there, there is some history leading up to this. Um, so lots of resentment and then focusing on the other, if you what will. What a strange synchronicity that Martin Luther, who began the Protestant Revolution, and he himself was racist towards Jews, suddenly Earth then makes, God makes a Martin Luther King Jr., goes along and calls for the universal brotherhood of mankind it's really interesting i don't know why why that synchronicity is there it's just an interesting it's Mm. funny how the universe is full of these cosmic jokes i don't know if joke is the right term for something like that but you know what i mean well you know sometimes when you're on the other end of a joke it don't feel so good so no jokes are just kind of those happenstance things that are Funny because they're true, not funny because it's tickles my funny bone. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah sad, sad truth. Yeah. So the clash, man. The the culmination of the absolute geist, the advocates for the new mythology, the last great movement in all of history is what Karl Marx was calling for. He took the self responsibility right out of the game, and he starts blaming everything outside, like you were saying there, blaming the rich, blaming, and and in the case of Germany, it was blaming the Jews. So it's uh, religion is a projected distortion that distracts mm. us from our authorship of history. It was Marx's yeah. way of looking at reality. History is not impacted by reason, but by the monster, was his philosophy. He rejects the idealism of Hegel and offers this utopia, a promised land. Mm-hmm. And he's also offering the participation, the participatory form of knowing that we have the capacity for the, the that not, Hegel was missing. And this is why it was such a powerful ideology and really captured people because it replaced that participatory involvement that you get from religion. Yeah. And it became, um, the Gnostic nightmare or the Gnostic mm. nightmare, excuse me, it did. It did. Um, where the true self is now something that's in your blood. There's this master race, you know, um, yeah, that's right. trapped in a conspiracy that's trying to wipe them out, you know? Yeah. Um, Sound kind of kind of familiar to some stuff I've been hearing of late, but anyway, mm-hmm. it's neither here nor there. Actually, right. it's here and there, but yeah, whatever. yeah, history rhyming. So this totalizing ideology of Hegel is now mm-hmm. married to violent revolution, because you know you bring about this utopia through the revolution of the proletariat mm-hmm. by any means, you know, yeah, and then, violence. and then this this participation in the revolution is basically you becoming your own kairos as jesus kind of was instructing you to do mm-hmm. be, be the right person at the right place and time to make people yes persons yes and that, that's uh, what now DJ means by kairos yeah the right yeah. place the right time something at the right place at the right time that makes mm-hmm. an action a fulcrum point things, yeah. almost yeah uh, so jesus being like the ultimate kairos in mm-hmm. the christian religion mm-hmm. um and so now, instead of being a partic- like participating in an experience that persons others, you're participating in the revolution yeah. that is primarily a conflict be- between 
Um, the, <laughs> I got yet another pencil. Uh, yeah, I know ready. myself. Uh, Throw one pencil. Uh, Sorry, but it becomes another. a primary like a, a conflict between the oppressed or the oppressor, the haves or the have-nots. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's it's n- necessary for the conflict between the two of them because you have to work out this dialectic between the two. You have to make a synthesis, a social synthesis or a whatever you want to call it, synthesis. So, you know, um, I think it's probably Hegel used, it was Hegel who used the term the socialized man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, so you're trying to get to the end of history and be able to look back at it and be like, all of that was wrong. We are right now. Yeah. And nobody in the future can judge us. Yeah. Instead of inspiring people to change themselves, mm-hmm. we were just forcing the change that we saw fit upon society. Well, and not even really having any scientific evidence or proof that it would work. That would work. Well, and, hundreds of millions of lives later, and people still argue argue for it. Yeah, and you know, like, it, it's kind because of... Because on paper, socialism sounds great. We, we've spoken on this. Well, you'd, you'd think they would try it in, like, small principalities and other stuff like that. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of astounding that humans just went for broke on it. We're like, no, we're going to try it on the largest... Um, scale pop, that we can, uh, yeah, yeah, on the largest scale that we can, and and we're going to u- impose a central authoritative body in the I, form of a communist, and you get really di- good data that way. So that's why, I'm like, you know, like, why do people even play with this idea that we can correct this thing that we have enough data to show that every point it fails, mm-hmm. except on the smallest. It just wasn't done scales. right. It just wasn't done right. I mean, you can do it with, it you can do it with up to twenty people. Go for it. <laughs> Go on your little commune and do your thing. Yeah, Fine. yeah, yeah. But it's not going to, you know... Like, Just don't force it on other people. Well, and I think it, it doesn't work out because it is replacing one's relationship with God now as a relationship with the state. Mm-hmm. And people this, have a problem with the idea of God in and of itself yeah. because when they hear that term, they think yeah. organized Christian religion and the perceptions yeah. that they have of it due to uh, the inst- the reputation of the institutional church and when i talk about god like in the sense of like replacing god uh, Mm -hmm. you know you can come at it from any religion that that worships a singular top deity a transcendent ideal even yeah and a sense of uh, interconnected interconnected oneness highest realm from which we all stem but see this this aspect of battles of wills and like god is another will and now the state is a will Mm mm-hmm we're every time the state needs to change in order to refresh itself this dialectic conflict between peoples who are you know you you always end up with haves and have nots right you're looking at it in a dialectic standpoint right yeah you know the one and the other so well okay this isn't good enough when you're looking from a a hegelian dialectic standpoint that's a that's a good point to make yeah particularly hegel's dialectic because there's a bunch there's other ways to proceed to look at these things Yeah, yeah like you know you could go with like you know there's not always an oppositional force like we were talking about mm-hmm. last episode. Yeah, because not everything has opposites. And if you start looking at everything as having an opposite, you get to some really dark places. Yeah. yeah. What is the opposite of a beaver? The tree, because because <laughs> the beaver is really oppressing the tree. You know? Ah, there you go. Uh, see, yeah, that's, see? That, there it is. There's yeah. the language. Yeah, the, the language of the oppressor and the press, the power dynamics. Um, Hegelian uh, dialectic is superfluous nowadays it's everywhere well and it seems like at this point in time too you know like um these modes of thought and the people who were having these modes of thought are falling prey to the parasitic processing end of mm-hmm. our heuristic good point heuristic decision making yep. process you know so it's reinforcing more negative more racism more bullshitting yourself so mm-hmm. you're not freeing yourself of bullshit you're adding more onto it 
it's causing it and to be exacerbated rather than if yourself is the sticky ball that gathers all relationships mm-hmm. it's going to grab a lot of bullshit and then yourself becomes very perverted and you know um it's hard to avoid in this modern day and age yeah. and i don't mean mm-hmm. perverted in the sense of like sexually i mean like perverted as in like being warped. skewed and yeah, warped away yeah. from its form and function yeah. Yeah. Um, that that sense, which can go sexually as well. Also, can course. be sexual. Cer- certainly, um, nowadays we have the broader the sense of that, that. word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so you're saying nationalism ends up taking the role of God. Yeah. Uh, God played the role in the past. You know, sac- something that we sacrifice for, that we're obedient to, that protects us. So, the nation state is now taking the role of the moral guidance that we had God symbols and figures for, mm-hmm. and. We're going to see what this does. Um, well, we saw what this does in last episode, and we're just kind of reviewing that now. Uh, but, of course, we're going to go further into that throughout the series. Um, so you had the merging of commercialism with imperialism. Pseudo-religious I- uh, identities are being pursued to fill the gap left by the religious framework. Germany fragments for centuries, or has been fragmenting, fragmented, let's say, for centuries, younger than Canada, as we noted. And uh, Bismarck unites Germany under nationalism with mm-hmm. kind of an ethics be damned approach to it. Uh, they were really desperate to catch up with the world, as DJ was noting. So disaster strikes, there's revolutions around the world, um, and there's also this attempt to secularize process. So we're looking for secular alternatives to religion that people are trying out now. And all of this takes us to uh, in this effort towards utopia and to replace God. We drenched Europe in blood. Yeah. And this isn't just the Christian God. We're just talking about a transcendent ideal right now. Yeah. The ineffable, the great mystery. Well, it seems we've been dragging it we, we, you know, down. We could even say institutional Christianity has failed to some or even well, great degree, depending on your viewpoint on it, yeah, and, in expressing Christ's way. Yeah, but the, the, mo- the, agopic the most way. Inco- important concept is the having a higher standard for the ideal mm-hmm. than what man Something can, greater than humans. That, yeah. Than what, yeah, man An can ultimate produce. version of love, an ultimate version of goodness. Well, in this whole process, since Martin Luther, we've been pulling God towards us. First, mm-hmm. it was opening ourselves so God would have to come down and shine its light mm-hmm. within us to save us and redeem us, but that was very arbitrary. So yeah. that lessens God even more, and now it's to the point where the state or the nation is the God and whoever runs the nation are like, you know, the, the priests at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we've brought God down even further and then even further. And now between, you know, Marxism and Nazism, God is the, is basically the conflict between race on Nazism and class on Marxism mm-hmm. side. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they didn't like each other either because no. like, even though they, you know, Nazism and Marxism. They're, they're both kind are, of different forms of socialism. Just, yeah. Yeah. Just not, the Nazis thought that they, they could do socialism better than Marx and mm-hmm. thought Marx was actually a decadent Jew that was a capitalist secretly trying to take over the world. Um, yeah. That's what Hitler thought. <laughs> just saying. Yeah. I know. Crazy, right? You know, <laughs> but crazy can sway a lot of people, man. It's, it's, yeah. Don't it's, give those people power. Nuts. So, so you made something, you made a point there that got me thinking about. So before we were, Ascending, mm-hmm. growing towards Go- yes, the, the yes, transcendent, to, so raising ourselves to be to in communion, God. to be yeah. able to meet, in 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 a to be able to become symbiotic with the universe yeah. in, the, in the most optimal fashion for ourselves. Yeah. So we're growing up, ascending to 
And now, like you said, we're actually bringing God down to our level. So instead of the human being now advancing yeah. in, in its orientation and, yeah. and intentionality to grow and encompass more, yeah. it is now bringing God down to its closed-in level to where it's not willing to grow it, it's it's a static thing that thinks it's just and in, trapped in power dynamics now or something, and, and it's got to fight and use violence to, to bring about the good. But ultimately, it's worthwhile, and ultimately, it's good because this is the utopia we're going for, and there's going to have to be well in both circ- some price paid. You in can say. both circumstances, from like a perspective point, if you are of the tradition in the mind to raise yourself up to get closer to God it looks like you're raising yourself up and getting closer to God. Now, if you're in the mind of tradition to pull God down towards you, then you're making God, but here's the thing. It looks like you're still raising yourself up because you're, well, you're signaling to that. God. So you're tearing something else down to make yourself bigger in one way. The other to way appear bigger. is yeah. actually growing and yeah. becoming bigger. Because by perspective, it. it looks the same, but in actuality in a- quite literally action, as well as other perspective and the fruits see, as well. Yeah. You can see that actually you're just diminishing God and you haven't made yourself any bigger. You've actually mm-hmm. hollowed yourself out from the inside mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. You know? And brought God down to a vengeful mm-hmm. violent level. Yeah. yeah. And you know, there, I, I do believe there are portions of God, the almighty DDD, well, everything that does have violence and vengeance within it. Yeah. It's what's well, generative and creative. It's <laughs> omnipresent. So it's always has been always will be, so it's really not destroying anything, but it is also destructive. You could say generative on the sun omnipresent, is, destructive. the sun is like a, a forest extremely fires. destructive bomb yeah. waiting to blow up and we're yeah. just enjoying it. While the destruction process is good for growth though. Yeah. And advancement of this. And sure. Forest fires that have to adaptation. Take, take it out so the trees can come up. It helps to for thriving and flourishing of the future life. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, this struggle. Part um, of the recycling giant universal recycling program. But between um, Mar- you know, the Marxists and the Nazis, this was the struggle on the Eastern Front. The Western yeah. Front was dwarfed by the Eastern Front. And oh, this the, is crazy. The Battle of Kursk. He did a in, good job talking about this. Yeah, in 1943, mm-hmm. the biggest battle we've ever seen, and millions dead. And you know, I live near Antietam Battlefield, which is the the largest battle on American soil, and that was pretty horrific. But it's nowhere near the levels of just this one battle yeah and the western front was astronomically large and the eastern front just dwarfs it i mean this this was horizon to horizon tens of thousands of pieces of equipment of tanks and airplanes millions of human beings millions of men were slaughtering one another yeah and the largest battle in human history so and then after this we see the ascendance of the soviet union in the start of the cold war Mm -hmm. and then this conflict um well, completely take over the entire world between the Soviet and Soviet allies and everybody else. Um, yeah. Yeah, the will to power was very strong in Germany. Then there's this, the collapse of idealism, then romanticism, then the thwarted nationalism once it fails in the First World War. Yeah. Um, the meaning crisis rises to fever pitch in the Weimar Republic. They're romantic, willful, autodidactic. Um, so they're learning by themselves, not in groups mm-hmm. together in fellowship. So there's nobody to kind of check and correct and help you further inform your ideas or in that if, learning process. If, if there were, they were skewing you down the preferred, perverted mm-hmm. Gnostic aspect. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, Cause you can put people like, you know, cults do this to bond the people to the cult. You know, they put this through a certain ritual. It's usually oh, yeah. like love bombing mm-hmm. or something with chemicals and other things like that. And you're just like, wow, I feel this experience. You know, I feel so good and supported by these people. And then they start introducing these rules. And as you break these rules, now you get excluded from these people that you feel so connected to, and that'll keep you in line. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a twisted mm-hmm. Gnostic practice as well. Um, mm. Yeah, for some odd reason, I have a fascination fascination with cult serial killers and you know some other stuff like that. I don't. I'm a pretty nice guy, but it's a sign of the times. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think our attention will be captured by those things that we intuitively recognize are help helpful, healthy for us to understand in regards to our uh, survival. And if we see our society in a state of perhaps decay, um, if we're, if we're seeing symptoms of social breakdown, then these are the kinds of things that one might actually find themselves being entertained by and then paying attention to because you're getting to know the traps that are around you and how to be able to talk to other people about them and perhaps save people from these cults that, that, uh, you know, they capture us by emotionality, you know, that's, you know, you, no matter how intelligent one is, anybody can be fooled. This is really hard for people to take. Our egos feel attacked when someone tells you you're being, you're, you've been lied to, and it's actually this. It's it's a really hard thing to hear yeah. for us if if we're attached to ourselves being correct all the time or something, you know, or even the perception of, of being correct, especially certain things when you find out you supported them, you're like, oh my God. I don't want to even have been known for having supported something like that, but we have to recognize in ourselves when we are misled. It's very easily easy to emotionally manipulate people. We are very easily led around by our baser instincts without even knowing it, no matter how intelligent. That's a quick aside. Um, so we're so at, we get up to Hitler, um, Mein Kampf. Oh well, I might have skipped a little I, no, bit. No, we're we're actually quite quite a bit past that. Yeah, let's, well, let's move on past all yeah, of this because so, we co- we covered this so very well during I'm, that episode. I'm pretty far in. So we have so. the tsunami of, of bullshit that comes along. Yeah, and that's the technical term bullshit. We're uh, already for up, how we can fool ourselves. Yeah, we're already up to uh, Soviet Union. Okay, Cold War. so we had the Great Depression, Soviet Union, Cold War. So we've had World War Two. Um, so Europe our, has been drenched in blood. Yeah, our myth. So what we're doing is confusing our mythology with politics and identity. And okay, I see on the Russian. The, thus yeah. furthering mm-hmm. these cycles of meaning crises. Um, say that again. I'm sorry, I lost you there. I was reading. Um. We're confusing our mythology with politics and identity, so yes. no longer do we have these myths that we, you know, use to understand things. Now it's all about politics, all about identity within the politi- political structure, and just keep cycling, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a cycling meaning crisis. Um, and so the mind is equivocal; it equivocates, and it can compare in inaccurate ways sometimes. And so, as such, science is fragmenting. Well, we're in the process of trying to understand the mind. Science coming up with so many different ways of interpreting it is fragmenting our ideas of what mind means. And and sub- subsequently, as a result, fragmenting our ideas of who and what we are. So this is the meaning crisis. Mm-hmm. We have so many different ways to interpret the mind mm-hmm. that we have looked at over the course of this series. And in the last episode, he actually names them. I'm looking for... Uh, where was that in this episode? Do you have that handy? Okay, we use cognitive science. 
We use info pro information processing. Okay, so cognitive science, well, first. Oh, yeah, you're... That's what this episode's about. So first, cognitive science is a multidisciplinary study. It covers uh, multiple ways of understanding the mind. One way that we understand the mind is, one of the disciplines is understanding the mind through its neuronal structure. And you, had, you had a good metaphor for this last time, too, I remember. Mm. Um, this, another way is info processing, the different algorithms, the programs um, that we are running in our minds. This can be understood in computer science. Um, we have psychology, the study of behavior, working memory, long-term memory, experience, statistical data. We had... So with each one of these, you have different levels of interpretation, different languages to interpretate with, and different evidence uh, as a result of that interpretation. So I have... Uh, I, I, we have I, linguistics, and we also have culture. Yeah. So, so anthropology. So several different ways of understanding the mind, and cognitive science brings all these together in conversation, yeah. utilizing as well philosophy. So the metaphor I had was we could look at the brain, the structure of the brain, that, that would be the, the shape of the monkey's brain. And then there's what is what makes monkey do what monkey do mm -hmm. and that's the processing that's mm -hmm. you know looking at the algorithmic programs within the brain mm -hmm. um and then there's the why monkey why and that's the, the psychology the behavior the behavior why why you know not yeah. what makes the monkey do that but why does monkey do that because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, we are not we're just you know like looking at the mind the mind is inside of a monkey form we are the monkey and we yeah. want to know what's the shape of monkey <laughs> what is what what makes monkey do yeah why Cause these are all different aspects do? of how mind works yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then language linguistics yeah and then the the grammar yeah. testing the judgments of how we understand words so this is intelligent monkey now because it understands linguistics and that's distributing mm -hmm. how the mind distributes information that's and culture workload. it's yeah. just oh, oh i'm within sorry the language. mind within one individual and using well and using then, language to communicate yes. and then in culture yeah. it's distributive cognition when we're using that mm -hmm. language together so you use anthropology to study culture so that's participant yeah. observation that utilize to understand that the, how the mind works in that way um so, as I stated previously, mind is equivocal. Science is fragmenting what mind means to us. Therefore, it's fragmenting our ideas of who and what we are. And so, uh, how do we get these disciplines integrating and talking with one another? How do we catch the pitfalls, go beyond equivocation to meaning-making? This is what Verveke is inviting us to discover along with him. So we're going to utilize philosophy because philosophy help is capable of helping us bridge the gaps between these different disciplines and get cognitive science really working for us. Mm -hmm. And that's it. That yep. was that's this whole notebook. It's the first twenty five episodes. You know where I got that? Um, I guess that reference from what is that? Monkeys killing monkeys, killing monkeys over pieces, pieces of, of the, the ground. ground. Yeah, I don't think... these silly monkeys know that eating has enough to go around? Oh boy. That's um, right into a tool off of 10,000 days. Alrighty. All right, fam. It's about that time. We're going to jump on in to episode 26 of Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. See you guys in there.
Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. This is episode 26. Last time we took a look at what's happening in Germany uh, in the period post-Hegel, post-Marx, post-Nietzsche. And we took a look at the rise of the pseudo-religious ideologies and uh, the various other cultural undercurrents and threads and um, processes of transformation that were gathered together in Germany and then exacerbated uh, and ignited, if, I'll, if you'll allow me a volatile metaphor, uh, by Germany's uh, terrific defeat in the terror uh, the, uh, that was World War I and the impact this had on uh, Germany and how all of this, all of these features uh, that we saw at work uh, in Germany and in the meaning crisis uh, get spun uh, in Hitler's autodidactic myopia into a Gnostic nightmare, uh, a titanic pseudo-religious ideology, and how the two great pseudo-religious ideologies of Nazism and Marxism, at least the, Stalin and the Stalinist version in the Soviet Union, uh, come to titanic blows in the Eastern Front at the Battle of Kursk, and then I pointed out that this and then the ideological battle, political ideological battles of the Cold War and thereafter have left us deeply traumatized. Uh, the, we, we place no faith in uh, pseudo-religious ideologies, utopian visions uh, to solve the meaning crisis. At least many of us don't. We do not see ourselves as capable of the nostalgic return to religion, somehow pretending that all of this history, all of this science uh, can be ignored in a kind of fundamentalism. And please note that I'm not equating all religion with fundamentalism. Instead, we find ourselves in the middle, in between these. And we're trapped. We can't go back and we can't do a secular alternative to religion, and yet we need something that will systematically create psychotechnologies that transform consciousness, cognition, character, and culture in a way that religions have if we're going to address the meaning crisis and, in fact, the meta-crisis that we're confronting right now in the world today. And so we're caught in this situation, and we pursue either various radicalisms, and I critiqued the idea that the meaning crisis should be understood, or we should attempt to solve it by the clash, or through the clash, by means of the clash of uh, political ideologies, that that is to fundamentally misframe it because if you remember, Kierkegaard and Marx and Schopenhauer, all in their different ways and in ways that we can criticize, are nevertheless pointing to the fact that the participatory and perspectival knowing that is so crucial uh, to responding to and uh, losses of meaning and regenerating meaning has been ignored by Hegel. So we can't do this Politically, it doesn't mean that pol politics is irrelevant, but it means that 
framing and formulating the problem at the political level is to radically misframe it and misformulate it. And then I propose to you that instead we turn to an alternative way of trying to reformulate the problem, that we try and get a scientific understanding as best we can of the meaning machinery, this machinery that we perspectively participate within. We don't just simply, I'll often say meaning making, but as I'll argue, we don't just, we don't make meaning the way the Romantics said, neither do we just receive meaning from the world the way the empiricists and the Enlightenment argued. Right? We're going to see that it's neither one of those. That's another dichotomy that we have to transcend. But nevertheless, let's look at this machinery, the machinery of meaning realization. What are the cognitive processes at work uh, within it? And I propose that we do that from a scientific worldview precisely because, at least from a scientific point of view, precisely because we need that to complement the historical analysis and because the scientific worldview is part of the problem of the meaning crisis itself. So I propose we take a look at the science of cognition, and that means that we take a look at cognitive science. I am a cognitive scientist professionally. Um, but, as I said from the very beginning of this series, I'm offering you a particular interpretation of how to do cognitive science. Not everybody in cognitive science would agree with me, but I think it is a viable and uh, respectable uh, version of cognitive science that can be argued for. What is that idea? It's the idea that cognitive science is uh, born out of a particular way in which the scientific study of mind has unfolded, and as I indicated last time, it's a way that has actually contributed significantly to a version of the meaning crisis that is deeply personal, deeply in the, the very guts of our minds and bodies. Right? And this has to do with the idea that this term has now become equivocal, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Because we actually are talking about different things, or at least different levels of the reality of mind, with different disciplines, different disciplines that use different vocabularies, different theoretical styles of argumentation, different means of measuring phenomena, different ways of gathering evidence. So we have the brain that's being talked about by the neuroscientists, you know, talk about patterns of neural activity using fMRIs, etc. We talked about that. And then we have a totally different level at which we're understanding intelligence, the mind, in terms of information processing, especially when we're in the project not of measuring brains, but of trying to make machines that are instances of mind. Not just simulations, but bona fide instances. Right? And this is the project of artificial general intelligence, projects like machine learning, etc. And of course, they talk about different things. They don't talk about neurons. They might talk about neural networks, but those aren't the same thing, uh, importantly. Right? They'll talk about algorithms, heuristics, you know, all that sort of stuff. Very, and they don't, you know, use fMRIs. They actually make the machines and processes. Different ontology, 
different methodology, etc. Then, we, of course, we have understanding mind as behavior, and that's psychology. And here we talk about things like working memory and problem-solving, decision-making, and, we, and uh, we do experimentation on human beings and statistical analysis. Uh, again, different ontology, different theoretical uh, vocabulary, uh, different methods of studying the phenomena, different ways of pre pre presenting evidence. Right? And we noted throughout that there are attempts to create hybrids uh, between the various disciplines. So these are the levels of reality here, and these are the disciplines here. Right, Because above this, as we said, we have language because of the tremendously important and special role that language plays with respect to uh, being a medium for mind and being a, a way of communicating mind. And of course, here we have linguistics, and we might get psycholinguistics to try and bridge between them. Right? But nevertheless, in linguistics, we're, we're, we're talking about things like you know, sentence structures and rules of transformation and gathering different kinds of evidence, etc. And then the networking of minds and brains together through language and behavior as culture, and that's studied by anthropology, and that has a very different method. This really emphasizes the perspectival and the participatory. So you do participate observation, you write ethnographies, right? And of course, that helps to uh, give one of the advantages of science. It helps to formulate uh, you know, and specialize people so they can get much more precise analysis. And so this is a good thing. Um, I'm not trying to in any way despise this. Uh, but it is problematic in that it carries with it, first of all, it fragments us. This term, mind, has now become equivocal. What are we talking about when we're talking about our mind? And, and related uh, constructs like our self. So let's remember what equivocation is. Equivocation is when you fall into confusion precisely because you do not keep track of the meaning of your terms. So here's one of my favorites, right? So nothing is better than long life and happiness. Kind of something that you get in Star Trek, right? Great. And then I can say to you, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich is better than nothing. Okay. So nothing is better than long life and happiness, and a peanut butter and jelly sandwich is better than nothing. Ergo, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich is better than long life and happiness. So, you know what you should do? You should eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and then commit suicide. Now, that's ridiculous. And that's the whole point. Um, not, uh, this should not convince you to eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to, and commit suicide. It's designed to convince you of the, uh, the, the, the ridiculousness of this argument. Now, why is the argument ridiculous? Because I'm use, the argument hinges on the, this, right? And that because I'm using the same term, 
it sounds like I can make the inference. But of course, although I'm using the same word, I'm not meaning the same thing. This means no thing from the set of things that makes life worth living is better than long life and happiness. This means no thing from the set of things you should eat. And those are not equivalent sets. There's not equivalent reference. If you don't keep track of what your words mean, that's why we, I'm always so careful to try and give you like the meaning of things and the history of the meaning of a term. If you don't get sensitive to the meaning of terms, you'll fall into equivocation, which is a disastrous way to try and reason about anything. Okay, so what's the point of that? Well, the term mind isn't univocal. It can be, what am I talking about? Am I talking about this? 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 Am I talking about how this and this? Am I talking about this? We don't know. And the degree to which I'm equivocal without realizing it is the degree to which my thinking about my mind and therefore myself is ridiculous. If you aren't clear about what this word means, how you're using this concept, you will be bullshitting yourself through equivocation. I also pointed out that one of the consequences of this is fragmentation. What do I mean by that? Well, there's, a, there's an ignorance in this. And again, I'm not, I am not disparaging these science. I love these sciences. I've got, got education in them and I value them. That is not what is happening here. But one of the things that is missing that we are ignorant of in this model is this. These various levels of reality causally impact and constrain each other in very important ways. These individual disciplines don't capture that. That's why there's this constant temptation and need to create the hybrids like psycholinguistics. So, how are we going to study, therefore, the relationship between the levels? We have to get the disciplines to hybridize, or beyond that, to talk to each other, to integrate together in some fashion if we're going to deal with that ignorance, and that has to be an astute practice. We can't, just, uh, we can't just integrate by equivocating. No integration through equivocation, because that's just bullshitting. So what we have to do is we have to have a philosophically astute integration. We need philosophy precisely because philosophy is the discipline that ha has us take conceptual care to try and articulate the meaning of our terms, to try and bridge, because that's what philosophy does, it tries to bridge between these different vocabularies, these different ontologies, these different methodologies. That's what philosophy does. Philosophy isn't about sitting around in cafes, smoking cigarettes, and saying vaguely obscure things. What's up, guys? We are back. That was awesome. So start. we have this need now that since politics can't create new psychotechnologies for us, it's obviously not the place to do that. We need something new and we can use science. 
which is right. both yeah which is both a problem but also a remedy within the meaning crisis as well yeah you know, see he, he he's reminding us that we can't go backwards into fundamentalism yeah that's um and scientific materialism isn't going to work either so uh, a proper use of science as best as we can manage to do it properly um to be aware of how our how we can equivocate and bullshit ourselves um along the way is going to help us and I, i love his suggestion of philosophy as a way to bridge the meanings um, so I'm fast forwarding a little bit there, but so we have the misframing of the 20th century at a political level due to misformulation of how to handle crises of meaning that were occurring. We, we were missing that participatory perspectival procedural knowing modes of knowing. And so we, we, so Verveke is argue, arguing for the best scientific under uh, explanation or understanding we can get of the machinery of meaning itself. Yeah. You know, and so he did a breakdown of what we have right now separately for these layers. So the layers of like of the brain, which is neuroscience, our information processing, that's AGI, um, you know, mm-hmm. your behavior, which is psychology, your language, which is linguistics, your culture, which is anthropology, but mm-hmm. which mind, are you talking about from which reference are you talking yeah, about which level the, of mind are you talking about brain. what language are the, you using because each discipline has its own language yeah exactly are you talking about the neuroscience side of it which is going to be talking about neural networks and that neurons in different parts of the brain fmri things like that uh the different methodology that they use or are you going to be mm-hmm. talking in the terms of information processing because you're talking about intelligence and we see how information processing is being utilized in the ai technology movement right now um you can try and look at the psycho or the behavioral level of mind and understand it through the discipline of psychology which utilizes working memory statistical analysis so on and so forth and 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 so we have several and it goes on language linguistics culture anthropology like dj was saying all of this cognitive science is actually a multidisciplinary approach to understanding mind so that all of these can be included together. Well, but you, the, but Verveke is now suggesting we need to use philosophies so that we can take conceptual care as we articulate meanings and bridge the gaps between the different definitions of these right. different disciplines. Yeah. And so that we don't, because cause we continually are getting fragmented. That's why cognitive science came along recently. And what did he say it was? The 60s maybe or even more recent? It's pretty recent. Yeah, so you can't have any of these layers or disciplines in a vacuum either because they're all, mm-hmm. what do you say, um, causal, they causally impact each other and they also have mutual constraints. You know, mm-hmm. like in in order to study, yes, yes, like say the information processing in AI, we have to use language or we're using language right now. So that's mm-hmm. two aspects of the mind. Mm-hmm. So how do we get all aspects of mind accounted for while we're looking at it mm-hmm. and then if we get new new stuff as well yeah can we get a larger wheel out of all these you know smaller wheels and get this larger wheel turning and uh, i guess of cognitive science and aim that at how we may understand and advance our understanding of the machinery of meaning making or not even making but just the machinery of meaning itself 
I, so I wrote down philosophy as the next layer that like encompasses them all. And as far as like, you know, you have neuroscientists that look at the brain and psychologists that look at the behavior. And then the philosopher, I was going to write down unemployed. <laughs> but, yeah. He's he's the he's the retired guy. He's the retired yeah, old sage. Yeah, we'll right? put retired. Let's let's put tired. Uh, well, that's, that, that's the discipline of philosophy, and yeah. the methodology is philosophy as well. Um, yeah. and, and it might not be an extra discipline. It just might be. Uh, but but I guess you can't say might, philosophy it, is obviously a discipline, the, but it's a the, way as of life as well. It's an orientation to the, reality. The field in which. All these these ideas together. can play, there you, you go. know, yeah. if you will. Like it fills in yeah. the spaces in between. It's the one quote-unquote discipline that can yeah. actually act as also a field and open itself up for all these other smaller disciplines to play in. Mm-hmm. Philosophy is an old discipline. Yeah. And it is a way, so it goes beyond discipline. And we're, we're stuck in a wheel now. But we also need to make sure we're not just drawing lines between things that don't like even these We're equivocating that, that, thank you yeah they don't call, need to be sir good call you know like because don't be equivocating yeah don't be mistaken your phrasing don't be I manipulating be verses to spit something that sounds good while you saying something and complaining don't be making equivocations okay try to build a good salience landscape that makes sense instead of one that's all mishmashed or the you know because Bushes are bushes and trees are trees, and don't convince the two. Because if I tell you to pick a fruit out of a tree, and you go pick one out of a bush, I can't guarantee it's not poisonous. So it's like <laughs> a tree be a tree and a bush be a bush. They're all in the forest, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Take that home. I don't know. I'm, Take I'm, that home to your I'm family a stickler and friends. For definitions, like when I'm talking, I like that one. Talking with people, I'm like, what exactly are you defining? Say, like when we have, I'll call them the gray terms. You know, any great term that you use, you know, like equity, equality, um, what do you mean by like, in some cases, like God, like, are we talking like religiously, like, or are we talking this way too? So it's like best not to equivocate the two, too, because there's mm-hmm. religious God and the Abrahamic religions all worship the same God, but there are many other religions that don't worship the same God, even though it is it's, the same God, true. but yeah. that's, you know, anyway. Well, you, you find that you you constantly have to kind of frame what you're saying. And well, I always ask questions. What do you mean by this? Okay, within this framing, this point, mm-hmm. you know. So, how are we using the word "nothing"? Is it like you know, nothing's better than life in the sense of there is nothing better than life, or do you mean you know, there's you know, um, a peanut butter, like you said, a peanut butter jelly sandwich is better than it's having better than nothing. nothing. Yeah. Having nothing, but this is two different meanings, senses no- of the term nothing. Yes, yeah. 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 So, yeah, that's important to remember. Um, and isn't equivocation one of the? Um, and we were, we were talking during the video too. We were naming off a few things that we yeah. that we noticed to ourselves, like the difference between that, the understanding huh? of the terms equity and equality. There's uh, an equivocation when people well, think equity means what equality even means. Even the word democracy. You know, you, you hear that one thrown around a lot, and it's just like, you know, mm. democracy, our democracy, our democracy, our democracy. It's like, well, if you're talking about the United States, you're talking about a constitutional republic with democratically elected representatives. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about the revolution in democracy, now that's getting into, like, you know, Maoist territory, where the democracy is the people who are all per- participants in this idea, and through democracy will get it into your head 
that you're guilty, that you have to confess all your sins, the struggle session that, you know, they struggle you literally in their democracy. So then you can become a part of their democracy. Yeah, but everything's in quotes because it's not the now, real meaning do, of democracy. Do we mean but democracy, our democracy is in our de- alone. democratic practices, or do we mean mm-hmm. our democracy is in my group of people who believe my stuff? My and stuff. If you're not yeah, going to, yeah. if you're not going to do that, we're going to struggle you until you do. And if you mm-hmm. don't, you know, so that's how dangerous words could get, right? Or even take the word socialism. Sure. What does that mean anymore? Yeah. It doesn't mean paying ta- taxes so people who get disability, you know. So, so we, so we also no, not, not just not do we have to frame what we mean when we're saying things and ask what other people mean, social. but we have mean, to preface and socially just talking yeah, what you mean, with what, what, what do you exactly. Mean by social, what do you mean by social? What do you mean by like or socialism? You know? Yeah, you know, it's like so. It and the best conversations are so ones where everybody's asking questions you. and continuing mm-hmm. to ask questions. You know, mm-hmm. oh, what do you think about this? Okay, well, what do, what do you mean by that? I mean this specifically. Okay, that, yeah, you know, think about this. Like, you know, blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, what's your opinion on that? And it just goes back and forth and more questions keep being asked. And, you know, because you don't reveal anything through assertions. You only reveal things through questions. Right. You know, assertions are just, this is the thing. No one's not revealing, it's just stating. Yeah. It's like, yeah, okay, we I'll see the thing. Yeah. Now, what is this thing? What's inside this thing? What makes this thing tick? Then you discover mm-hmm. more. You unveil more as you ask more questions. Mm-hmm. And then you figure out how to ask the right questions that answer a lot of other questions. And I think that's what Vivekis getting at here, too, is like, you know, finding the best way to ask questions about what. Yeah, is we got to get ourselves all together to where we can know. understand questions. together. <laughs> yeah, we, we need to be able to communicate, comprehend what each other's terms mean there you so go. that we're kind of speaking the same language let's make an ai that does nothing together. but ask really good questions bridges need to be built <laughs> instead of an ai that's asked like questions yeah. you just go there and it's just like ai generated billions of questions right that'd be cool i wonder what it would do to an ai that i do just... like the idea of ai assistants that are out to, that that are designed programmed to help you achieve your highest goals and are just really powerfully inspiring wise effective at encouraging like ideal butlers you know. yeah you know, like right that, exactly. you know, trying to yeah. you know, like yeah. help them learn and teach them the why yeah. shit and you know mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. pick up after them when you need to pick up after them but sometimes watch them you know oh you know, knee, you know you know that butler. uh what was the name of Link's fairy oh uh navi navi she's coming you know in like 50 oh, i don't, yeah, I don't know floating. how many years it's like, decades hey. a decade who knows but People are going to have that kind of stuff in the future. You see it coming. It's like, oh, man, I dropped my phone. Where's my phone? Over here. It's hey. going to be so cool, guys. We just got to actually get there. And things don't just automatically work on their own. And, you know. Well, we can't be like Hegel and create something and sit beside it. You know, That's right. No, that's, it's, Look what happened. The so name of the game for <laughs> humans at this point in history today is that we all get to become stewards. We all are recognizing our global interconnectivity. We are literally in the midst of the formation of new cultures and global sense-making capacities where we can figure out things together in mass by the millions. And I, I love how quickly everybody was on the same page um, after the, the day after Epstein didn't kill himself and those memes were probably seen by like two, three 
billion people within 24, 48 hours. Well, I, I do think probably our most and everyone was in agreement. Psychotechnology you know? that we created, or at least we made sense of that one fast. Or, or we either created it or made it more efficient and better. But but as memes, because what a meme does is a meme concentrates a lot of meaning into two pictures and two lines, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's using you know symbolic shaping, and then obviously you have to be somewhat in on the culture to get the meme so mm-hmm. you have to have a little bit of pre-knowledge to it mm-hmm. and then it sets you up and then you powerful understand, communication immediately tool. understand the circumstances why that's either funny or true or funny yeah. and true yeah. immediately on the spot yeah you know like the you know epstein didn't clinton himself i mean i mean oh yeah, yeah exactly sorry uh but you know like if you're there's so many just stupid little memes that like if you're not a star trek nerd you wouldn't get or mm-hmm. I saw a music one where it was like uh, there's niche music, super niche music, music yeah. nerd ones where it was you know the the note A flat on a trouble cl- uh, you know on in um, trouble clef so F A C E instead of the other one um, and it was like I don't live in a condo but I live in A and then it was like non music non music people confused. Yeah, A flat. <laughs> non music people confused cat, and then like music people smart cat, and I felt like writing back uh, American music people. Uh, confused cat because we don't call them flats here in America; we call them apartments. I love the cat memes. Yeah, yeah. Well, cats, you know, they they their cats are really actually still like, winning the internet, man. Uh, love it, and our hearts worldwide. Yeah, yeah. Well. You think we're good to jump back in? I think that covers uh, just about everything. Yeah, so how do we integrate all these layers? No Build integration bridges. through equivocation because that's just bullshit. We're just going to continue bullshitting ourselves. Indeed. So we need better questions and we need a, a better, or use maybe using psychology as the field in which all of these disciplines can play. Philosophy. Um, ph- excuse yeah, me, yeah, yes, philosophy. Lots philosophy. Of, lots of PHs and PSYs and you yeah, know, right. starting things with Ps. I guess we are jumping back in. I'm just going to rewind Mr. Verveke here a little bit. These different methodologies. That's what philosophy does. Philosophy isn't about sitting around in cafes, smoking cigarettes, and saying vaguely obscure things. Right. Now, the discipline that tries to come up with a philosophically astute integration between these disciplines so that we can avoid equivocation and deal with fragmentation and overcome the ignorance of the causal relationship between the levels, that's cognitive science. That's what cognitive science is. That's what people mean when they say cognitive science is an interdisciplinary science. Now, I hope you see that cognitive science is already directly confronting and addressing one of the ways in which the meaning crisis is inhabiting us in terms of the way the scientific worldview, again, I'm not denigrating it, but the way in which the scientific worldview is fragmenting us and causing us to fall into ignorance about who and what we are and to equivocate and bullshit ourselves about who and what we are. Cognitive science is placed to address that by its very nature. And of course, 
it is the science that is going to talk about this meaning generation process because all of these are about that in some important way. They're all about how mind makes sense. Now, I want to argue that there are different ways in which you can understand how you practice cognitive science, how you try and create these bridges between the disciplines. I'm gonna, uh, and I'm not presenting them in a neutral fashion. I'm telling you that right from the beginning. I think one of these ways is the best way. A way, nevertheless, in which people use this term, they'll often not capitalize it and they'll pluralize it. They'll talk about the cognitive sciences. And then all that is is just generic nominalism. Cognitive science or the cognitive sciences is just a name for the genus that each one of these disciplines belong to. Anthropology is one of the cognitive sciences. Machine learning is one of the cognitive sciences. Neuroscience is one of the cognitive sciences. Generic nominalism is useless given uh, the concerns I've articulated for you. It's not going to address the equivocation. It is not going to address the fragmentation. It is not going to give us any purchase on addressing the ignorance between the different levels of reality. So I, I believe we should, although this is often used this way, we should reject this at least as the sole meaning of what cognitive science is doing. Right? The next thing people do is they will have this term sort of cognitive science and they understand it as a, as, a, as a kind of interdisciplinary eclecticism. When I do, like, I'm, you know, to do cognitive sciences, let's say I'll, I'll be one of, I'll be a member of one of the core disciplines, let's say I'm a neuroscientist. And what I do is, I'm a neuroscientist, but I, I, I read a bit about um, psychology or perhaps linguistics, and then I pick some ideas that are interesting uh, from the other disciplines, and, you know, and I use them. And sometimes I, I'll tell some of my linguists or psychological friends some of the things I'm doing in neuroscience, and some of those ideas might interest them. And of course, th that's good, and people are free to do this. And the model for this, right, is, you know, kind of, I mean this as an analogy, you know, what we have in interfaith dialogue. See, the, the whole point about interfaith dialogue is, you know, the, the Christians and the Buddhists talk, and, you know, I find something interesting. Let's say I'm a Buddhist in Christianity, and the Christians find something interesting in me, and we talk. But we're not trying to radically transform each other. There's no sense in which there's going to be a really significant uh, uh, transfer, a transformative transfer of insight uh, between us. And we're certainly not trying to make something above and beyond Buddhism and Christianity. It's not like after we do the interfaith dialogue, we're going to have come up with a new religion. Now I use that metaphor precisely because I think it's helpful right, for understanding 
Now, the goal of interfaith dialogue is to, you know, enhance mutual understanding and build tolerance and respect, reduce violence, and these are all noble endeavors, so I'm not, I'm not disparaging this. But notice the problem here. Notice it's not really capturing why people feel so strongly, you know, drawn towards creating things like psycholinguistics that bridge between them, the, the different disciplines. See, the problem with this is it's, both, it's either too weak or too strong. This can very quickly just become, there's no significant bridging between the disciplines. There's some interest, there's some creation of mutual respect, but it's not the case that we're really capturing significant, theoretically important relationship between the different levels by having strong in, in transformative insights passing between the disciplines. So this will tend to degenerate, or people will realize they need something stronger. They will realize that there is something to this attempt to create the linking disciplines. And that's the third, and I think therefore best, vision of cognitive science. That's the vision of cognitive science as synoptic integration. Synoptic integration is not saying that all the disciplines are saying the same thing. It's not saying that. But it's not simple eclecticism of, well, they're all saying different things, but let's get them all to be friendly and like each other, and they can have some sort of peripheral influence on each other. Synoptic integration is saying, no, we need to build something right between the disciplines that addresses the equivocation, deals with the fragmentation, and fills in the ignorance, tells us about how the levels are all are actually causally interacting and constraining each other. That's synoptic integration. So what you want to do, right, is you need to say, they're not saying the same thing, but they're not just saying different things either. You have to create this bridging vocabulary that integrates across the disciplines. Now, that's a tricky thing to do. But we've talked a long time ago about the fact that our brains actually, since the Upper Paleolithic transition, we've been training them and developing them and enculturating them to get very good at bridging between domains. Even the word bridge exemplifies what I'm referring to, namely metaphor. We use metaphor as a way of bridging between domains. I am not about to make the argument that science is metaphor. That is not what's happening here. Okay. <clears throat> but I'm trying to use metaphor as a way of saying that there is already a cognitive ability in us that we can exact and make use of in cognitive science. Look, look at how a metaphor works. Okay, if, if I say to you, and Sam is a human being, if I say to you, Sam is a pig, right? Notice what you have to do in order to, uh, to make this work. So I, it looks like I'm creating an identity claim, Sam is a pig. But of course, what makes it a metaphor is it's not an identity claim. I can't use this as a way of telling you that Sam has pink skin and he lives on a farm and he's going to be eaten by other human beings someday. Okay, that's not what I mean. I mean something like he's gluttonous or he's, 
you know, sexually selfish or something like that. Right? So notice what I have to do. I have to keep the two different while also saying how they're importantly the same. Now why am I doing that? Because the difference, right, the difference gets me outside of my, here's my framing of Sam, and the difference gets me outside of my framing of Sam, and I look through this, I look through, if you'll allow me, you know, the framing of something as a pig, and I, I, I use this to look and see something in Sam, a way in which they're identical, so I step back through the difference, but I step, I look through into the identity, and I see things in Sam through my pig lenses, if you'll allow uh, the metaphor, and I allow, it allows me to see and understand Sam in a different way. It alters what I consider salient in Sam. It restructures. And so, metaphor has this duality about it. And what you want to do is you want to, you want to create a, 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 a metaphor that it balances these in an appropriate way. When a, metaphor, when a metaphor balances these, these, these two well, we talk about a metaphor being apt. So notice if I make the identity relation too strong, if I emphasize this side too much, and I say, bees are hornets, you don't think, oh wow, what a great metaphor that is. That's such a wonderful metaphor. In fact, that's a really crappy metaphor. right? This doesn't give me enough distance. I can't step back enough and have an insight into this. This provokes no insight. There's no insightful transformation of my understanding of bees. This is too close. But if I, if I emphasize the difference too much, something like, you know, arguments are chairs. Well, you know, arguments are chairs because they're both human-made structures and we use them on a day-to-day -day basis. And this is a very crappy metaphor, uh, precisely because you know, the difference is too great. I've stepped back so much, if you'll allow me. I'm, I'm losing sight of this, and it's not clear. It's vague. How, what am I supposed to see about arguments through this distant lens of chairs? Apt is when I get an appropriate balance of that. So what I'm looking for I'm writing cognitive science, is I'm looking for theoretical constructs, proposed theoretical entities, that get this apt balance, that allow me to keep the differences between the disciplines, but, uh, you know, but also see from and through those distances relevant identities that are, allow me right, to look from neuroscience into artificial intelligence in an insightful way. Or look from, I step back from, right, behavior in psychology, I go, I step into linguistics, and then I look at psychology, I keep that distance, I don't identify them, but I also try and see, ah, but what is the, what can I see in psychology through the lens of linguistics? Now, of course, the thing about cognitive science is it's not trying to create single aptness, right? It's not trying to create a one, this is one way. I've just bridged between two domains. Cognitive science is trying to create constructs that are multi-apt, that bridge between multiple domains, multiple disciplines. 
And that multi-aptness is really important. So I'm trying to create constructs with multi-aptness. They get this balance between identity and difference that affords and provokes insightful transformation of the theorizing from one discipline to another. And I start to create an overarching integration. Now this brings up an important idea about, well, what's constraining me? How do I, like, what's, how do I judge if I'm doing this well or badly? Well, this has to do, I think, with this notion that is very much the notion that we use when we're considering how to create new constructs, new ideas, theoretical entities that will bridge do between domains, create lines of inquiries. This is plausibility. Now, there's two meanings to this word. One is just a synonym for high probability, and that's not the one I mean. There's a, dis there's a different meaning, originally uh, really brought to the fore by Rescher's work, but a, a lot of other people. There's work being done now, some good work um, uh, in psychology being done on plausibility. I'm doing some work with Leonardo uh, Ferraro, uh, uh, Jun-Sung Kim on plausibility. And this other sense of plausibility isn't a synonym for high probability. It's a, it's, it's a synonym not for rational, but for reasonable. The sense, making good sense, and of course, man, that's so relevant to us, right? Making good sense. Deserving to be taken seriously, right? This is what plausible means. It, it's reasonable. It makes good sense. It should be taken seriously. Now, when we look at right, sort of ideas that we're using to make sense of the, of the world, and again, this is building on a lot of people's work. Uh, I, I can't refer to them all, uh, all the people I'm trying to draw together. Of course, people make judgments of plausibility all over the place, and they bullshit themselves in this in all kinds of ways. I'll talk about that. So I'm talking about here not a descriptive theory of what people do when there's... Okay, we're going to break. We'll, we'll pull that back a little bit. What's up, guys? We're back. So we will discuss... Cognitive science... This is a set, it's like a, it's like a psychotechnology almost, the way Verveke is describing it and the way that he seems to approach it, but it's a multidisciplinary approach to understanding, or that is designed to address the fragmentation of our understanding of mind by the very nature of how many different disciplines are studying the nature of mind at once. So it's a, it's a method, it's a way to try and bridge all of them. And like DG was saying earlier, it, you can think of it like an arena. As, as philosophy, or at least as we were thinking of philosophy, um, we can think of cognitive science as the great arena which in which all of this is playing. It would be the game. Is the game. There you go. That That's the game. The and, and philosophy is like mm -hmm. the, an arena. I like this metaphor. Well, f philosophy is probably the one thing that allows us to apply metaphor to directly it's, to. It's the science. one discipline that 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 can talk with all the disciplines. Yeah, yeah. So it's like an intermediary. It's it's a multi apt discipline. So we talked about different ways um, to practice um, mm -hmm. cog sci, 
and he thinks some are better than the others. So he goes mm-hmm. through them, and one is this cognitive sciences, which um, it's he said generic nominalization or nominalism. You could also think of it as like describing things as a feature list, opposed to its structural functional yeah. organization. Yeah, and that's so that's you that's know. a incorrect definition of what cognitive science is. It's, there's a lot of misunderstandings of what cognitive science actually is out there. Yeah, that would be um, like you know that would be like the bird a bird has wings, has feathers, has a beak, mm-hmm. has two eyes, opposed to you know a bird is a thing that has all those things, but also flies and lays eggs and does bird things right uh, and the next one is um the interdisciplinary um eclecticism, eclecticism the, yeah. the dabbler or the interfaith you know conversations that aren't necessarily There's... for the goal of achieving a new religion or a new theory new framework or anything it's like that together like, it's just that it's we have mutual along, interests you know, and it's yeah. going to help us grow in each of our uh, yeah. respective but not uh, traditions that we follow, but it's it's another way of misframing what cognitive science is. So and it what, lacks it lacks that urgency to do something better as well within that um in that analogy. Yeah, yeah. within just the eclectic nature of mm-hmm. it. There is no drive to become better, to create something more, you know. So you end up getting, you know, it degrade degrades or you go to something better. Yeah. Cognitive science is actually designed for synaptic integration. Is it's, it synaptic or synoptic? Because I'm not sure. Or synoptic, the, I'm not sure if yeah. the, there's a And it's hard to there. look these terms up because they're not just terms you can just easily find, like how to spell it on the interwebs. It's, I mean, it's the same It's the same term okay. regardless of pronunciation. Oh, really? Um, it's a pronunciation thing? Yeah, yeah I'm pretty sure okay. it's synaptic in spelling with an A regardless. So this is what the actual purpose, the goal, the methodology of cognitive science is. It's something to address the equivocation the the false equivalencies that we can make um i don't even know what i just said there equivalencies is that a word heals the fragmentation uh between the various sciences trying to understand the mind so it bridges and to connect and help these different disciplines integrate their knowledge and speak to one another and so it's kind of like a super discipline that or uh utilizing many disciplines at once to understand the mind and we've used the metaphor of bridging between, or we've used metaphor as a way of bridging between uh, various different domains of understanding since like our Paleolithic times. Mm-hmm. Verveke introduced us to that early on in this series. So he's basically then goes through the process of breaking down what metaphors are and how powerful metaphors are as tools for helping us gain insight and get closer to an understanding of something. Yeah, so he said that the Sam is the pig. You mm-hmm. know, one interpretation is Sam is a barnyard animal that people are going to eat one day. Yeah, he yeah. lives on a farm. He's got pink skin. The other one know. is he's dirty, unkempt, and selfish. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, quite mm-hmm. boorish. What Verveke is proposing is the integration of the two and deciding which is most plausible. As in, what we talked about plausibility before, which is. A bunch of separate things all pointing to the same thing and then multi-app and very applicable to many things. Yes, yeah, so when, so when, when we're trying to describe Sam being, something. Sam being a pig in this circumstance mm-hmm. as far as barrier and animal is not plausible because... No. Nothing is pointing to him actually being a barnyard animal. But there mm-hmm. may be many things. And oh, pig is a really good description for, you know, being boorish and slovenly and mm-hmm. whatnot. Yeah. 
so and gratuitous and um gluttonous so he talked about um so how yeah we can see through the i like the idea Mm -hmm. of the comparison of pig back to sam it must be insightful to gain and it gains us an insight yeah and so that so metaphor has a duality to it, and balance, when balanced well, when that duality is balanced very well, it's an apt metaphor. It can yep. you know you can be too close, like you can say bees are like hornets, and it's like is that telling you anything new? Is that really mm-hmm. getting like an insight to pop off in your brain, or you're having a light bulb moment when you hear that? Obviously not, because it's a horrible metaphor. Mm-hmm. And then you could say that arguments are like chairs. Because they're both man-made. <laughs> and it's like you're going too far. There's too great a difference between now. and you're in, But you're trying to talk about how they're both made. But the, the difference between is too great for the metaphor to work mm-hmm. now. So and we, it, we need good, strong theoretical constructs to help us keep the balance and see the relevant insights so that psychology mm-hmm. can understand linguistics, can understand computer science, and all the way through. Like it, This is so important in Verveke is involved with AI research right now. And he's making this point, I think, because he understands how absolutely imperative it is that we cultivate the wisest, most able, deep-thinking AI specialists that we can possibly get. These engineers that are engineering the potential coming AGIs need to be friggin' Frodo. They need to be literally like Frodo Baggins level <laughs> scientists plus sweet, loving, kind, thoughtful, patient human beings that have a strong grounding in the theor- theoretical constructs that are like multi-app uh, bridges between multiple domains at once. This is what we need now. Yeah. And it's the one ring is a powerful thing. It can so kill us all. in order to do this form of cognitive um psychology is we there must be our well okay our theoretical constructs as well as the applications of these uh, constructs must allow us to not just see and well to see into something from another perspective but not just that but also to see another perspective uh, various many so yeah the this goes back to the this goes back to this you An know, overarching the, integration this goes back to the psychotechnology of scaling up and scaling down mm. and like meditation versus contemplation mm. and back to non-dual mm. so it must do both at the same time it must see you know you use one practice to see into another but then also say reverse it mm-hmm. see into your own practice from another mm-hmm. practice mm-hmm. so scaling up and out or down mm-hmm. and in um and so that's like now we're seeing the integration of all the stuff he's been leading up with yeah, as yeah. far as you know all the super sciencey technical mm-hmm. stuff that we went over earlier yeah i yeah. like earlier in the series not earlier today but um and there are constraints yes um and that's the plausibility constraint and the plausibility as in you have many separate things that are all pointing to and agreeing on the same thing. So it's like, if you're listening, you know, if you're like trying to figure out what happened at the party last night, you hear everybody's story. And if they're all pointing to the same, Johnny made a fool of himself. Okay. That's one aspect. And then how powerful is it? And how wide 
of a net can you basically mm-hmm. cast with it? And that would be um, what was it? Uh, was it graceful? Or uh, there was another word that was used. Elegance. Elegance. But yes. it has a, it's powerful because it applies to so many things. It is mm-hmm. multi-apt. It's multi-apt, so yes. So everything's coming back, you know. Mm. Um, so mm. one of the constraints being, what is, yeah, what does plausibility do? Are there many different practices that are all pointing to, like, this theory and then its applications being true or not? Mm-hmm. Through the use of metaphor and philosophy yeah, and beyond just true like what are repercussions and th- this yeah. and that when you get into behavior and well, first, you know, start first to is idea but, true okay yeah. if it's plausible enough to be true then what happens next let's run that ex- let's use metaphor to run that experiment if you will mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, cognitive science will help us do a lot in our understanding of how minds work when we mm-hmm. will gain a much greater understanding of ourselves in the process and we will be able to potentially um and wisen ourselves enough to where we can responsibly utilize the AI, AI technology that we are inevitably de- well, in, well, in the midst of developing right now. It's kind of getting um, its legs underneath it and running on its own now. And it's it's literally, it's the cat is out of the bag. Mm-hmm. So if we want to be able to have some influence over the, the directionality of this revolution in science, we will be wise to uh follow this lead here i I think so so far so good i i I like what he's doing here this is uh giving us a good grounding for understanding what cognitive science is where verveki is is going to be coming from as as we further pursue this understanding of the meaning crisis so we're going to be utilizing cognitive science now to to go much deeper so here we go let's jump back in was there anything else you had you good oh no i'm i'm good right on Let's uh, rewind him because I let him talk a little bit there. We need to Give get a Verveke uh, 20 seconds or so. Rewind sound button just to press the difference that affords and provokes insightful transformation of the theorizing from one discipline to another. And I start to create an overarching integration. Now, this brings up an important idea about, well, what's constraining me? How do, I, like, what's, how do I judge if I'm doing this well or badly? Well, this has to do, I think, with this notion that is very much the notion that we use when we're considering how to create new constructs, new ideas, theoretical entities that will bridge between domains, create lines of inquiries. This is plausibility. Now, there's two meanings to this word. One is just a synonym for high probability, and that's not the one I mean. There's a a different meaning, originally uh, really brought to the fore by Rescher's work, but a lot of other people, there's work being done now, some good work. uh, I went back like a couple minutes there somehow, didn't I? I'm doing some work with we Leonardo okay. uh, Ferraro. Ah, here we are. Uh, Jimson Kim on plausibility. And this other sense of plausibility isn't a synonym for high probability. It's a, it's, it's a synonym not for rational, but for reasonable. The sense making good sense. And of course, man, that's so relevant to us, right? Making good sense. Deserving to be taken seriously. Right? This is what plausible means. It's reasonable. It makes good sense. 
it should be taken seriously. Now, when we look at right, sort of ideas that we're using to make sense of the, of the world, and again, this is building on a lot of people's work. Uh, I, I can't refer to them all, uh, all the people I'm trying to draw together. Of course, people make judgments of plausibility all over the place, and they bullshit themselves in this in all kinds of ways. I'll talk about that. So I'm talking about here not a descriptive theory of what people do when they're uh, saying something's plausible. I'm talking about a normative theory about what do they do when they're doing it well? What are they doing when they're doing it well? So part of the argument is this. People, of course, really like ideas that are multi-act. Right? Here is my idea, my thesis, my proposal, some model, whatever kind of construct I'm using, and it's multi-act in that you know, I, can, I can use it and it can bridge to this domain and this I can go into these many different domains. I can do this insightful connecting and transfer. I think this is a much better way, this notion of multi-aptness, right, and being able to go into many d different domains and help us find, formulate, and solve problems. I think this is a much better understanding of what scientists are trying to invoke when they say a theory is elegant, right, than just talking about simplicity, precisely because of the way we have no canonical way of trying to work out what scientists are meaning when they talk about simplicity, whereas it's clear that they do seek constructs that do this. Now here's a problem. Is that good enough? Is that, is that good enough to make a construct plausible? Now see the problem with that is if it's just on its own, right, we're, 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 we're lacking something. We're lacking another thing that we want. And this is a point actually made by Rusher and it comes out in some of the psychology of plausibility. You see, we also want that these constructs are produced in a certain way. Not just that they're, this is how they're used, but this is how they're produced, right? This is their forward orientation, this is their backward orientation. We want a construct that has been produced by many convergent, right, independent lines of investigation. Now let me show you just a concrete example of this, right? And you can see it even in young kids. You prefer information that Right, integrates, think about integration, across multiple senses. Right? So you prefer information that is not, not just something you can see, but also you can simultaneously hear. That's why seeing and hearing me right now is better than just seeing me or just hearing me. Now why is that the case? Well, you see, if, uh, if I'm getting all of my information just through one channel, there's a very good chance that this thing is being produced by bias, by distortion in that channel. But if I'm getting the same thing produced by, from multiple independent channels, right, there's a very good chance that it's not being produced by the bias or distortion in any one of these. There's a chance that, there's a very good chance that the relative, that the, the, the relative biases and distortions cancel each other out. So, uh, by doing convergence, I get bias reduction. And man, does that matter, eh, for overcoming the way in which we bullshit ourselves with salience. So, convergence gives me bias reduction, what Rescher calls trustworthiness. Now, trustworthiness isn't truth. It's not certainty. This, by the way, is why science likes numbers. 
Scientists like numbers not because we're fascists or because we don't appreciate the artistic beauty of blah, 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 blah. We like numbers because they give us this. Look, you can see three. You can hear three. You can touch three. Numbers afford convergence and they boost trustworthiness. They help to reduce bias. And remember, I tried to argue that the scientific method of experimentation is a method, right, in which we are trying, a method of, sorry, the scientific method of experimentation and observation are methods, psychotechnologies, in which we're trying to reduce bias, reduce the way in which we're deceiving how we're coming up with our constructs. Now think about this. If you had just elegance, this multi-aptness, you can bridge to many different areas and link lots of stuff together, but it wasn't produced in a trustworthy manner, what would you have? You would have conspiracy theories. That's exactly what conspiracy theories do. They're a form of bullshitting because they are, they're, they're very... Uh, look, if you will just accept that the British royal family are lizard, reptilian aliens from another dimension, you can explain so much of their political and social and interpersonal behavior. Just give me this idea, just give me this, and look at what I can do. Look at all the different disparate facts I can link and integrate together. I can give you this synoptic integration. And you should be saying, yeah, but it's all bullshit. It's bullshit because we find this, we want this, so it's very salient. But it's bullshit precisely because we've, we've lost this. We don't trust the construct. What about the opposite? So, the conspiracy theory is far-fetched because it gives us lots of this, but very, very little convergence. What about this, where I've got tremendous convergence? Surely we'd like this, and there's, just, there's very little insight, integration. What's that? Well, if you read scientific journals, you'll see people, and even beyond philosophical journals, people rejecting this. This is... This up here, this is the conspiracy theory, and it's far-fetched. But you know what this is? This is triviality. And we reject things. Now, to accuse something of being trivial is to not say it's false. It's to say that it has no transformative power. It makes no difference. It causes no insight. It affords no integration. So this tells, this tells us something. And notice, 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 notice ways in which we can equivocate on these, right? Between, we can equivocate between this, right? Between these two. So Daniel Dennett talks about this. This is way in which, one way in which we bullshit ourselves. He calls it the deepity, a deepity, okay? So people do this. They'll say, they'll say things like, Love is only a four-letter word. And, and you, everybody says this, and oh, it's very profound, and you take another drink of your alcohol or whatever. Right? Now, notice what's going on here. On one level, this is a triviality. Of course love is a four-letter word. I've got many different independent memories, different uses. Everybody's using the word love this way. Right? Love is a four-letter word. Right? Now, at that level, it's trivial. But then, it's supposed to, I'm supposed to equivocate between this as a word. I'm equivocating between this as a word 
and this as a concept for a thing that I care about. Because love as a thing has tremendous elegance. It goes into so much of my life. But notice what's happened here. I'm not actually giving you any information or analysis about love as a thing or a concept. I'm pretending to give you multi-aptness when in fact all I'm doing is giving you triviality. Sorry, triviality. I equivocate. So I say love is just a four-letter word. It's bullshit. It's bullshit that makes use of, abuses, and this is powerful ways in which we bullshit ourselves with these deepities, these things that sound deep and are not deep at all, because what we're doing is equivocating, right? We start with something that's undeniably trivial, and, we, and then we're equivocating with something that looks like it's elegant and multi-apt, and we bullshit ourselves. We do the reverse, right? We say something that looks like it's really multi-apt and really controversial and it's going to change everything. And then we're challenged. Oh, no, but great criticism. Oh, no, no, I never meant that. I only meant this trivial thing that nobody would possibly object to. Right? Right? This is the Martin Bailey strategy, right? Where you present and it looks radical and controversial and then when you criticize you withdraw. No, I was just saying this. It looks like I'm doing it, but you know, just this. But then I pretend that I didn't actually change my position. They're the same thing. And that is again how we bullshit ourselves. So notice how we can abuse this machinery and bullshit ourselves. Now the fact that we can abuse it tells us how we can improve it, how it's supposed to be used. Because if we acknowledge that these are abuse, that this is abuse, that right, the deepity is an abuse, if we acknowledge right, that the Martin Bailey strategy of avoiding criticism is an abuse, if we admit that we don't want far-fetchedness and triviality, we can put this all together into a normative account of what good plausibility is. We have high convergence matched by high elegance. Now, I'll talk a little bit later when we do some more cognitive science. We want something more about this in terms of relevance realization and other things, but we'll come back to that. But when I get a balance between, balance between convergence and elegance, then I get something that's highly plausible. I'm making a construct that is trustworthy and powerful. And it's affording me getting a, a new pattern of intelligibility. This is how I make integrative new patterns of intelligibility in the world. And so this is what you're trying to do in cognitive science. You're always trying to create these constructs that are high in plausibility. When I get something that is extremely trustworthy, that is balanced with powerful multi-aptness, then I think that's what we mean when we say something is profound. It's the exact opposite of the deepity, the triviality, the conspiracy, the Martin Bailey bullshit.
It's profound. Now, being profound doesn't mean it's true. Being profound means it's very reasonable and it should be taken very seriously. I'm going to now try and exemplify this with you. I should mention before I go that this idea of the balance between this and this, I got this from Elijah Milgram's really, really brilliant work on practical induction. Practical induction is not induction about how you change your belief. Practical induction is how you change your desires, how you change what you care for. It's deeply relevant to that Socratic project of having a rationality of what you care about. Okay, so what I want to do is, first of all, draw this together in this definition. Okay? So cognitive science, right, it's the discipline that is trying to bring about synoptic integration, and I'm going to say it's trying to bring about profound synoptic integration. It's trying to create these constructs that bridge, don't reduce, bridge between the disciplines. Profound synoptic integration Profound synoptic integration that addresses equivocation, equivocation, fragmentation, and ignorance. The ignorance of the causal relationship between the levels of reality that we designate by the term mind. That's what cognitive science is trying to do. And of course, as I've tried to show you throughout, it is deeply relevant to the meaning crisis because it deals with this issue of fragmentation, the confusion we have about ourselves, how we're, we're sort of pulled apart. It deals with, as you've just seen, uh, the, 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 the meaning-making machinery, and it deals with, again, as you've just seen, um, our propensity for bullshitting ourselves and deceiving ourselves. Now what I want to do is I want to do the cognitive science of meaning-making. Again, I'm not totally happy with this term because it, it, it sounds too romantic in my ears. Right? I'd also want to say meaning-seeking but that, that, that's, that, sounds too, that sounds too empiricist in my ears, like meaning's just out there to be seen and experienced. Right? So, I'm going to try a new metaphor. Because it also goes with something else I've been saying from the beginning. And this is inspired by the way we talk about the cultivation of wisdom, and it's, it's inspired by Heidegger's use of this metaphor, meaning cultivation. Because what, what I'm going to try and argue, and I've been also you've seen this in the history, is, is meaning isn't something we're imposing willfully on the world. That's a mistake from our history. Meaning isn't something we just find in the world. That's to ignore the scientific revolution. Right? 
Meaning is something between us and the world, like the way you cultivate a plant. You're, you're doing stuff with the plant, but you're also allowing the plant to unfold. You're, culti- you're cultivating with the world, meaning between you and the world. So as much as possible, I'm going to try and switch this. I will fall into habit because this is the language that we inherited from the, 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 the cognitive revolution in psychology about talking about meaning-making and making sense. Um, and where the emphasis is on us making, even though, I'm going to, as I'm going to show you, third-generation cog science is much more talking this way than the romantic notion that we impose or make meaning or we simply sense it or find it in the world. Okay, I want to start doing the cognitive science of this. I want to take a look at right, the science of cognition, And I want to try and exemplify what I showed you, what I argued for. I want to try and exemplify synoptic integration and the creation of a plausible construct. So, the faculty in us that is supposed to be our core cognitive capacity, our core capacity for meaning cultivation and being able to adaptively respond to the world. And this goes all the way back, right, uh, to the Greek heritage. This is the notion of intelligence. Intelligence is the capacity that makes you a cognitive agent. At least an agent whose cognition is working with meaning as opposed to a living thing, right, that is, in some sense, like a plant, responding, maybe in a very sophisticated fashion, but it's just responding in this complex fashion to its environment. Intelligence means you are, in some sense, a cognitive agent. Okay. So... What is it that we should, how should we frame this? We're we're going to try and get a purchase on this, right? So a good way of trying to understand this is the way we try to test for intelligence is being a general problem solver. And this goes back both within the psychometric to people like Binet and Simon who are trying to measure intelligence, and people like Newell and Simon, two different people, by the way, (laughs) uh, that are trying to uh, create artificial intelligence, make intelligence, artificial intelligence, artifactual intelligence, right? Not fake intelligence, right? Both of them point to this idea that when we're trying to measure or make intelligence, We're trying to measure you as a general problem solver, or we're trying to make a machine that is a general problem solver. Now, what does that mean? Okay, so here's a machine that's not a general problem solver. This is good for solving this problem, holding water. And we've talked about this in such a way that I can use it. It solves a bunch of other problems, maybe, but not very many. Not very many. It's very limited in its problem-solving capacity. Right? Now, unlike that cup, you 
are capable of solving a wide variety of problems in a wide variety of domains. You are a general problem solver. You can worry about God and how to get a drink, how to go swimming, right? how to build a houseboat. The number of domains in which you can operate is vast, and within each one of those domains, there are many different kinds of problems you can solve. You are a general problem solver. And that's why when we measure intelligence, we give you a wide variety of different kinds of tests to see if you can solve a wide variety of problems across multiple domains. That's how I test to see if you're a general problem solver. And what Newell and Simon were exactly trying to make, they in fact called it, we can't use this term now because it now means global positioning, but they called it the GPS, the general problem solver. The first project to make artificial intelligence not just computational machines, but artificial intelligence was the right this project of trying to make the general problem solver. Okay, so you're a general problem solver. Okay, great. That makes sense, right? Now, what I need to do is a couple things to be. I got to be very careful here, right? And because people get very, of course, this is. We'll, we'll come back to that. This is such a a politically laden term. Um, precisely because we, 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 we aren't clear about what we're talking about. We're equivocating all over the place, and we're ignorant of how this term is applied to different levels of reality. And yet, nevertheless, we bullshit ourselves by finding it salient and rushing into speech and action without the clarity that is needed. We'll see, for example, that this is not a synonym for being rational, being intelligent. And what you ultimately should care about is not how intelligent you are, but how rational you can become. So, let's take care here. We're meaning some capacity you have for solving your problems and learning. And so we want to keep intelligence separate from knowledge. Of course, having knowledge enables you to do things, right? And in, in that sense, in a broad sense of adaptivity, it makes you more adaptive to your environment. You can do lots of things, even if those things are make claims that other people value for their truth. But if you, if you think of the, if you make these synonymous, then you can't use this to explain this. You can't say the reason why Susan was able to acquire such knowledge is because she's intelligent. Because if intelligent means possessing knowledge, then all you're saying is Susan possesses knowledge because Susan possesses knowledge, which is non-explanatory. Right? So what we want to ask is, what is it to solve a problem? Don't focus on the product. Having the answer, getting the knowledge, right? focus on the process. The process, and this is going to be a hallmark. We've talked about this before. The hallmark of rationality is valuing the process, not just being fixated on the product, especially the belief, the conclusion. Right? So what we've got to analyze the process. What is it to solve a problem? And this is where the work of Newell and Simon was just so deeply influential. It's been influential in psychology, computer science, uh, economics. It's just seminal and important work. Now, as I first try to describe it to you, it's going to strike you as 
you know, somewhat trivial. But let's go, let's go very carefully on what we're going to do. Right? We're going to try and analyze a problem down into four basic features. And I'll, 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 we'll end today's episode uh, with that. And at that point, it won't seem like we've got that profound construct that we're looking for. And then I'll need you to wait to next time. But Newell and Simon basically said, what, what is it to have a problem? A, a problem is when there's a difference between the state you're in, which they called your initial state, and the state you want to be in. This is your goal state. So I have a problem when there's a significant difference between those. For example, I'm thirsty. <gasps> Right? <clears throat> and I don't want to be thirsty. And those aren't the same thing. I, things have to change in the world and in me for the difference between the initial state and the goal state to go away. So part of what I have to do when I solve a problem is the system has to be able to represent, we'll have to come back to what, how we're going to use that term, the initial state and the goal state. And then there are actions, operations I can perform that will change the state I'm initially into some other state. So, for example, part of the problem I had was I'm over here and the glass is over here. So one of the things I can do, one of the things I can do is I can walk towards the glass, right, the cup, right? Of course, another thing I can do is I can raise my hand. Now you say, well, don't raise your hand, that's stupid. Well, wait, there's going to come a point, though, when I do need to raise my hand. So I'm going to need that operation, okay? So I think you're starting to see things. And then what I do is from here, perhaps I can do... Two other operations, right? From here, maybe three. From here, maybe only one, and so on and so forth, right? I'm not going to draw it all out, right? So, so far, I've got, right, three things that I'm analyzing a problem solving, I'm analyzing problem solving into. Initial state, a goal state, and operators that can transform one state into another state. There's one other thing I have. I have what are called path constraints. You see, I'm a general problem solver. I don't want to find just any solution. One of the ways I can make lunch for myself is to burn down my house. It will cook my food. That is not a good solution, not because it doesn't achieve the goal I want in this situation of cooking my food, but it really reduces me as a general problem solver. I don't want to solve this problem to the detriment of my ability to solve multiple other problems, or I will lose my intelligence. I will lose my capacity as a general problem solver. So what I have to do is the following. Solving a problem is this. It's to have a sequence of operations, a sequence of operations that will transform the initial state into the goal state while obeying the path constraints, preserving me as a general problem solver. That's what it is to solve a problem. And this, this is called the problem space, or sometimes called the search space. Now, what this analysis does for you is it explicates the problem space. And this is where all of the powerful insight of Newell and Simon's work comes out. Because once we start to pay attention to properties of this search space, we can see 
how profound this idea actually turns out to be. And that's what we'll do in our next session together. Thank you very much for your time and attention. Yeah, yeah. Meow, 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 meow. Meow. Rough, rough, rough. Meow. Rough, rough, rough. Meow. Rough, rough, rough. <laughs> Hairball. <laughs> that was good. Like good where was the break? There was the break. I think I found it, yeah. How do we judge if we are recognizing what is plausible well? Or we're looking for multi aptness plus elegance. Yes. But we also want to know not just how they're used, but what went into producing them. We, we want to know that mm-hmm. we're looking for many convergent lines of information. So that convergence plus elegance. The more convergent... It, well, if, if you don't have a... Here. Less it, susceptible to bias. Yeah, if, yeah. yeah, if you don't have enough uh, conver- places converging down, or channels, if you will, mm-hmm. you're prone to bias. Lines of data or information. So having yeah. multiple channels of information... That are confirming together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, help like, reduce yeah. the bi- uh, bias. Yes. So through increases, convergence, trustworthiness yeah, increases becomes a trustworthiness. Thing. And not truth, not certainty, but in the way that science likes numbers because they're reliable. Yeah. It supports convergence, reduces yeah. like bias. You said like, you can touch three. You can. Yeah. Th- see three. Static. You can hear three. Yeah. You could taste three different things. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Um. So the scientific method is a way to reduce bias. Mm-hmm. And, of course, now we have conspiracies as well, um, which give you lots of lines of seemingly convergent data, but it's... Uh, it Okay, no, yeah. They, they give you a lot of convergent, seemingly convergent data, but they afford no integration. Um, it's the same thing on the opposite end. Mm-hmm. Tri- you can have something that is trivial because it makes no difference. It's not causing any new, new insights. Mm-hmm. So Everybody that, says that the sky is blue. Yeah, right? yeah. Okay. So we have the idea of um, love is just a four-letter word. Mm. Well, I mean, that's, you know, if you're not discussing what love is as a concept. On the trivial level, then yes, it is a four-letter you know, word. Then, and you can bullshit yourself with that idea. But on the trivial level, yeah, it's just a four-letter word, exactly. And, and we're, we're equivocating. But if we look at it as a concept, we recognize it's this multi-apt yeah, you know, the, you know love is the sta- love. The word is the stand-in for the thing that is multi-apt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we talked about the Martin Bailey technique of mm-hmm. you know saying like you know love is a, just a four-letter word, and then they're like, no, love is so much more than that. Like love is like you know, so it's just like, oh no, like you know, I just you know, I really meant just the word love is a four-letter mm-hmm. word. I didn't really mean anything by it. Oh you know, yeah, making yeah, these you right. know like seemingly bombastic radical statements and then just going back and no actually just talk about the, mm-hmm. the triv- trivial end of the argument mm-hmm. which is very untrustworthy well, i didn't really mean that i really meant like you know like i meant like destroy them at the polls not actually destroy them come on yeah now, yeah yeah know? like that kind of stuff yeah exactly so high convergence matched by high elegance is what we're looking for. We're looking for this balance of the two to get that trustworthy, powerful way to integrate new patterns of intelligibility. Yeah, so basically 
new constructs of high probability plus multi-aptness equals profound. Yeah. And profound doesn't mean true, but it means very reasonable and to be taken very seriously. Yeah, and CogSci is this engine that creates plausible and profound theories and ideas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a profound... It provides profound synaptic integration that addresses equivalencies, fragmentation, our own ignorance. And dealing with the fragmentation, the self-deception, we can see how it helps us cultivate meaning. Yeah. So meaning cultivation rather than meaning making, which is yeah. the old term. Meaning cultivation... Um, we're not imposing it. We're not finding it out there in the world somewhere. It's actually between us and the world. It's something that we cultivate with the world. I've got a little sayingism that I wrote up because it was just easy for me. But meaning is not thrust onto the world, nor is it found in the world, but grown with the world. Mm, yeah. And there's three relationships there. There's on, you're thrusting on, and then there is well, within another relationship within like you know not within but in and then there's with which mm. is participatory mm. um, so yeah. it's an object or object subject subject and then participation between the two yeah i'm, I'm terrible thinking the world is you and you are the world this is why we can change the world from the inside out so the core capacity the word we're using for the core capacity of meaning cultivation is intelligence yes as in being a cognitive agent mm -hmm. intelligence so we got yes a, a good general problem solver yeah and, so, and he also well, reminds real, us ration and, and we can recognize here why rationality is more important because intelligence yeah. isn't knowledge isn't having a lot of knowledge you got to separate it from that idea yeah. that we get in our head someone that has a lot of knowledge must be intelligent it's actually focused instead on the process, not the product, yeah. so that you can see how. Because this, we we discovered that we were wrong in how we were understanding intelligence when we started trying to train AI. What is it to solve a problem? And so he shows us a search space diagram. He shows us how we can have our, we'll have our initial state and we'll have our goal state. And this is how you describe our problem. Well, let's say initial state here, goal state here. And we're trying to find a way. We're, so we're taking actions from our initial goal state. We're trying out different actions. Well, each of these actions have different repercussions. So understanding the problem space and how we can set paths of constraints to get a proper sequence of operations that actually gets us to the goal state mm. is what intelligence is actually doing. Yeah. So it's pro it's a problem-solving capacity. Yeah, so these, these four four features, if you will, are having an initial state and a goal state having and then little actuator operators within there and then constraints for them to work with mm -hmm. it because like you said you don't want to burn down your house to cook your steak right you don't want to burn down the, yeah, the country cooked, for the revolution now i can't eat it and will. i can't live anymore yeah exactly yeah. yeah you don't want to destroy the world and then you have just the, because humans make mistakes and then the fourth feature of this whole thing is the space in which the problem can function within so this question is what it is is it to solve a problem i get well i won't say it has to have these four but we are using these four uh features to discuss what it is to have a problem well mm -hmm. we will be next week yeah you know he left us on a cliffhanger so there's an idea as you Here's where you are. There's where you want to go. There's different points. Those points we call operators. We need con path constraints because you don't want to walk down the wrong path because it doesn't 
get you to your goal state and you need a space to do this mm-hmm. to, this interaction this um this dance this game this thing right so it's their arena yet again you know the arena always always coming back yes yes indeed to the agent in arena relationship all right guys i oh, think boy. that covers it though and that was an awesome episode yeah, so I mean, now we understand why Verbeek is proposing cognitive science in lieu of, with a philosophy uh, to help us solve the meaning crisis. The episodes yeah. are all starting to like come together now. Really come together now, yeah. Mm-hmm. This one was one of the most lucid, clear episodes for me as well. Um, and of course, you know, this, this this one is, since we're on episode 26 now, we're at the first the last 25 episodes, and so he's given us kind of a general overview of things and uh, a few new definitions, but we built a upon a lot of previous understanding and it's uh this is where it starts getting really exciting we're getting into the actionable side of the game now yeah all right fam love you guys thank you so much for tuning in make sure that you like smash that likes and subscribe button share it with your friends and family who you think may be interested as well and uh check out american dharma this saturday our band is going to be playing in hedgesville virginia weather permitting please please don't rain and uh, if it does, we're still. I'm probably still going to be hanging down there. I don't know if you'll be able to make it out or not, but we'll, you know there'll be people there. It's still going to be a festival event. There's going to be vendors and um, games and all kinds of fun stuff going on at Seven Moons Wellness in Hedgesville, West Virginia, for the Sun and Moon Festival. Uh, American Dharma is playing second to last, I believe, at three forty-five to like four thirty-ish or something along, along those lines. I'm and then Solus after us, and many bands and before us, and all day playing from eleven. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if I sent that in the group chat. I'll make sure that, that uh, the set okay. list is in there. I was going to ask what the, what the situation was yeah. beforehand anyway. Yeah. Right hey, now I we're just keeping around the weather. I show up and I don't rush. Yeah. Even if it rains, there's still going to be events. There's still going to be vendors and food. And, of course, Kim and her wonderful shop, uh, Seven, Seven Moons Wellness Center, is going to be open as well. So we invite you all to come on out. It's family-friendly event. And it's going to be a good time. Actually, family. Definitionally family. Not like Absolutely. this new definition of family that they're using which is kind of like democracy yeah, universal our family our, yeah, our group right. of people yeah it's some or, that group but not your group not or, that group or that they group. say it's family. everybody is invited yeah. universally to this well and true I family mean that i mean it's like literally and literally you, your you kids won't, you can won't come. see ranch and stuff like that no. it's not one of them family friendly things no, yeah right yeah we got to define terms even more now right you know yeah we're not talking about that kind of family friendly by any means well, that's a misuse of the Chris term family really you know like opened my eyes to this idea of I won't necessarily say intention, intentional wishy-washiness with words but like how we have to stay away from using words and ideas as wishy-washy as well as being prone to listening to these wishy-washy uses vagaries of, yeah, that, using. Yeah, that just convince you of one thing but it's just trying to use big words sometimes to say something or just power words sometimes to say something or somebody intentionally using a word one way but meaning it another meaning, way oh yeah you know, that too that, that happens well. a lot um, that's the problem yeah. with vague cults they yeah. use vague language to get you in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we got to be precise a lot of circular reasoning yeah self-referential yeah. uh definitions yeah yeah you never actually get a real definition yeah, yeah. No real solutions are offered. Permanent guilt is one of the things that's popular right now. Yeah, right. And if yeah. you weren't guilty, you will be. No. Yeah. <laughs> because of the way you look or appear. or Jeez, yeah. We're, we're down that road again. Yeah, right. It's a fun one. But this is these uh, revolutions. 
if you will, are the ways that we relearn the lessons that we need to because they do reappear in more challenging forms as we go through life. Lessons do reappear for us as individuals and as a, apparently as a species, as a collective. As we notice history rhyming over and again these days. Oh, this is going to be one hell of a uh, punchline to a rhyme if we do it wrong. True that, man. True that, I agree. I feel like humans and Earth deserves to survive in the cosmos long-term, as long-term as possible. And if we can become a more benevolent, wise, loving, caring species, then we have earned our way out into the cosmos and earned the responsibility of being able to interact with other, potentially other uh, living species. So it's going to be really hard for us to get off this planet until we learn to be truly symbiotic with one another. Um, not completely, but more so uh, symbiotic with one another well, in the planet. How about just like not like going enough to not be self-exterminating force into some of the most destructive ideologies and technologies we've ever done yeah recognize how hungry we are stop doing that for a sense of the sacred for a relationship for communion with something sacred um we can fall into cults we can fall into uh secular um Um, non-religious ideologies that that are very are secular in my opinion like most of what we'd see as cult behavior and i'm talking about per capita like there are more people that are the secular behave. alternatives to the religious. Well, not way. even just like you know, like the, the managing human I- ideologies beings. were so quickly picking up. That's what on, I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's like, there, these, sec- these current modern secular alternatives yeah. to the, the ways of rec- of uh, developing moral virtue. You could say. Yeah. Now we got forced acquiescence. Me- well, you methods. could call them communities, if you will. We throw mm-hmm. that word around a lot too. This community, that community, all this. Yeah, that if you start hearing that too much, where it's just like, oh, we're representing this community or that community, or I speak for this community or that community, it's like, um, it's all division, it's all fragmentation, it's all breaking yourselves apart into egoic identification, and then it also encourages and breeds narcissism. The cult of community and the, uh, I, what is it, cult of personality and the cult of community. I think would be the other one for you have a cult of personality that worships one person. Yeah, because there's a I don't cult of community that must identify with something. These communities is particularly healthy and not particularly inclusive either. Yeah, you know, it's it's to a certain extent nowadays communities are fluid, like in the sense of like I am part of the gaming community because I play Minecraft and Project Zomboy. I'm also part of the music community, but these aren't like heavy be all end all. Uh, constraints they're definers of like where i exist in the world and mm-hmm. what do i do mm-hmm. the problem with you know this I, identifying with communities too much is when you put your be all end all you is with that's right within yeah. this community, yeah, opposed the community to you isn't... being a member of many broad groupings of people yeah it's not the complete explanation of yeah. who you are you yeah. know it's not, not at all you're you're a depthless individual all of us are and you know i i i, I don't remove know. the labels don't do it not just from people. Do it from objects. Take the word tree off of a tree and see it for this wondrous extension of, of Earth that it is, this weird, strange, alien mystery that they are. Look at them. You know, I mean, they're, they're so beautiful and so strange the way that they fractal out and turn their branches and leaves towards this bright orb in the sky, which take the labels off of everything, especially the individuals that we're interacting with, but try doing it with the world too. We are literally... One with everything around us. It's our minds that are separating the whole thing. And it's it's a trip to wake up to the reality and, and the ongoing awakening that can occur as a result. There is no cap to awakening, fam. 
There is no work. No. No, we're There's always... just signaling of our of our fragile egos that are afraid to be alone, and we want to matter, and we want to belong, and we want to be a part of something real and true and good. So we are nowadays signaling our virtue rather than seeking to actually be virtuous. Or cultivate virtues within ourselves so we can gather wisdom, you know? Yes. Oh, I have virtue. Okay, what's that doing for you? Like, are do you understand your relationship to everyone else in the universe any better? Um, yeah. No, but you did get like 6,000 likes on that. So I guess you got a dopamine blast. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. 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 Well, technology, man. Technology is not good or evil, but it, it super it, addictive. It that is, endorphin rush is nice. Yeah. You can see why people get addicted. It to raises me. my heart rate. I don't like looking at any of that. Like, oh, there's a whole, even when I check out like the, yeah, this channel on the YouTube, you know, if I see a comment, my heart rate goes up and I'm like, Ugh. yeah, well, you, you, God. you build up, um, you're, you get, you're, you develop tough skin to all of that, but yeah, you, you can, you can build up, um, nah, just, even if it's just, a capacity to, to recognize, oh, I'm emotionally responding to this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's not, I don't need to, I can separate from that. I, I just, I, I'm a more personal interactive type person, not in huge sure, quantities sure. and numbers that, you know, it's like. No, you got to get used to and be comfortable you know, with the idea of people saying nasty stuff to us online. It's oh, it's going to happen. That the nasty stuff don't bother me. It's just the fact that people are commenting and people have seen the stuff where I'm just like, you know, realizing like I guess with this show, you know, I have I have talked to more people through this show than I could subject my small little town to. Yeah. yeah, no, it's, yeah, like definitely. More people listen to definitely. me on this yeah. than they in the town I'm from. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah, if you, if you bring in the audio side of this podcast, um, you know, we're around one to 300 listeners. Well, dude, a even day, one of these videos getting 20 views on YouTube, mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever had 20 people sit down and listen to me at any point in time. Like, as far as like 20 people listening to the same thing I said, you know, it's just like that's weird to me. Yeah. But, okay. Well, you know, you know. it's the same with YouTube. It's not like they're watching the whole video. Some people are. But uh, well, I don't have to pull teeth to get people to listen to me. You guys do it on your own, suckers. <laughs> <laughs> no, we appreciate it. I mean, yeah, we're we're actually trying to have these conversations, and I seek far and wide for these kinds of conversations. And um, people that I can meet where I'm at, and people that are at at places of understanding that I have the reach to to be able to catch up with. But it, it's all well and good, and it's all healthy for us. And it's I'm thankful um, to have all of you guys sharing in this journey with us because you know we're all trying to figure this out together here. Well, it's worth doing. It's better than not doing. True that, brother. Oh yeah. Well, it's a it's a horrible feeling to stick your head in the sands and to feel like you're wallowing, to feel like you're even like lashing about or uh, can't get a handhold. You know, it's like you're in a the rapids going down a river too fast and trying to avoid the rocks and it really feels good to realize that there's people out there and rafts that can pull you in lift you out of the rapids get you back into the flow state get you paddling again yeah but if you ever meet a raft guide they'll probably tell you that uh, your goal is to stay in the boat and stay on the boat because uh, they will leave you to die if it means saving everybody else in the boat too so you have to participate it and actually 
climb towards the raft. Well, that's the situation Earth is in right now. Yeah, so you can't yeah. just be like, save me. No, you actually have to be like, okay, there's there's a point. We need we everybody in the to. raft to kick ass right now, yeah. as many of us as possible. If there's one or two people not picking up the, the slack on their well, ends, that's, we, that's we okay. Might, we can maybe handle that. Well, but but we, we if need. you fall out, we might not be able to help you either. So it's, We're going to try, know, but we, we might not to, be able to, man. We might be yeah. moving too fast to be able to, even if we wanted to. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. You know, and that's, you know, that's something too, is like for those who feel that, they, you know, things leave them behind. It's like sometimes, yes, people do get left behind in the forward momentum. And the best thing we can do is try to remedy that as well as we can and have the least amount of people falling out of the boat. Yeah. Well, and that's I, where, well, and also, hold, hold on. That's where, you know, I don't want to use this word educating, but, you know, educating people to you know teaching people to teach themselves to make reasoning for themselves is important because that's like using the metaphor teaching them how to paddle how to brace themselves in the boat properly how to hold on to it for dear life and how to do these things instead of just being like oh i don't know and then when everything comes crashing grabbing somebody else and pulling them out of the boat and you know right right, right yeah you know the the flow is strong and we're in a rough a rough rapids and we can float it pretty good we have people that are good guides you know that have been through stuff like this just yeah. through history unfortunately the people at the forefront of the the rapids you could say are like they got hatchets and stuff and they're knocking trees and limbs and they're moving logs like, and stuff out of the way and and like no it's like go that way and it's like a waterfall there's a lot of people clearing the path for those that will come behind us yeah. and uh yes I, I certainly don't want to just sell the fear side of what's happening with the meaning crisis i mean we've can't we've come here together to explore and discover how we may awaken from that meaning crisis, help usher in an awakening from that meaning crisis, each one of us. Well, I'll sell the fierces. There's both sides of it. There's the beautiful, glorious potential of what, of, uh, what humans have true, true capacity for. And then there is of course, the danger of what happens if we don't. We got both of those playing at once, and that well, is our reality. No great excitement without uh, a little risk. A little bit of suspense, a little bit of risk, yeah, yeah. for sure. And anticipation. Yeah. We are at a climax in our species' mm-hmm. history and our planet's history, and it's created self-reflective, self-aware beings that are looking back at itself and also to the stars from whence they came and wondering, what the hell? How did we get into this mess, and how do we get ourselves out? And that's where we are at right now, in the midst of a meaning crisis and we thank you all for traveling with us. We'll, we will be back next uh, weekend, or next week, sorry, Wednesday on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitch at 8 p.m. EST. So we invite you guys to join us once again. And, uh, yeah, we already we already said our impromptu, everything else. This is the impromptu chit-chatter, chit-chatter, chit-chat part of the, you can tell we're tired. Yeah. I'm this sure. is where we say goodbye, and we love you guys, and we're out. Talk to y'all soon. Meow.